listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present to you Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, celebrates the completion, the fulfillment of all of the, all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. And do I mean all? So, anyway... And uh, I am here. I'm very happy that you are here. We have a guest lined up for the show. At the moment, we're desperately trying to reach him, but I think we'll get him in another moment or two. And um, in the meantime, let me uh, kind of introduce him a little bit in his absence until um, until uh, the studio can put him on. I'm very excited about him, especially given that our audience is... Uh, it's definitely Christian, a Christian voice in your home. Although, of course, I can't help hoping we get the odd Jew here and there. But anyway, um, but he is a Protestant. I don't want to offend anybody, but he's a Protestant convert to the Catholic Church who discovered the truth of Catholicism, kicking and screaming, one could perhaps say, when he started reading the very first Catholics, excuse me, the very first Christians. They're known as the Apostolic Fathers. They are, in fact, the um, Christian uh, uh, disciples of the disciples of Jesus. So we're talking about the uh, writings of Christians who learned the faith at the feet of John the Evangelist or at the feet of St. Luke and so forth. Uh, St. Luke may not be a good example, but anyway, uh, John the Evangelist or, or uh, St. Peter and so forth. And when he read their characterization of the um, early church, and they were um, writing in those days, um, then he realized he could no longer um, deny the fundamental truths of the Catholic Church. So anyway, I see he hasn't yet shown up, so... um, I will uh, read a few pages, uh, not a few pages, a few paragraphs from the introduction to one of his books. He's got two books. I invited him on today to speak mostly about a recent book of his called Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her, excuse me, Four More Witnesses in the Early Church, uh, which is the second book in this sort of series. The first book of his was called Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her Own Words, and those were four of the um, disciples of the apostles themselves. Um, so I will simply um, I will simply start by reading a few a few paragraphs, and I hope I hope I hope maybe I should be saying I pray I pray I pray that uh, that we get them on soon. So, with that, let me, oh my goodness, I see he's still not on, but perhaps it'll be moment, moments until he comes on. Otherwise, I'll just have to do my best. But in any case, uh, reading from his introduction, the early church is no mystery. As a matter of fact, most believers would be astonished to learn just how much we do know about the first 300 years of Christian history. We know what sorts of heresies attacked the early church. We know the very names of the heretics who stood against her. We have hymns and prayers and poetry preserved from this period. We have epitaphs from Christian tombs. We have doctrinal statements, Bible commentary, and sermons dating from these days. To put it briefly, we have, contrary to popular belief, a very vivid picture of primitive Christianity and a picture that is open for investigation by anyone. Let me set the context for this a little bit. Um, I'll get a little personal for a moment. I actually attended a Protestant seminary. I was already a Catholic, but I went there to learn biblical languages. And I was basically told there that the early church for the first couple of centuries looked like Protestantism. And the early Christians would get together and they would, you know, uh, read scripture and they would sing hymns and so forth. And that everything that we think of as Catholic, the mass, the hierarchical structure of the church, um, certainly the papacy and so forth, came in 
as an influence of the Romans and, in particular, Roman paganism when Constantine joined the church. And in fact, um, there was a kind of a studied ignorance of the first couple of centuries of the church, and that ignorance was unnecessary because, in fact, we have plenty of documents and writings and letters and so forth um, from that very first period of the very first um, generation after the apostles themselves. So that that is uh, the context. The author, his name is Rod Bennett. I hope he'll be introduced to you in a matter of seconds. Uh, having come from Protestantism, believed this, believed that it was a kind of a um, a black hole. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, I don't know what's going on here, but um, hmm, he's still, uh, please uh, uh, let me um, bear with me for a moment. I'm going to try to see if I can find out anything by email. Oh goodness gracious. Okay. Um, uh, okay. Uh, uh I think I know the solution to this, which is I will have him into the studio 866-333-6279. Okay, so I'm I'm having him call into the studio. He seems to have trouble uh, receiving the call, and um, and that should solve this um, this problem in a moment. And in the meantime, I'll continue talking. Okay, um, let's see if, if he's uh, called in. Uh, the, you're seeing a little bit behind the curtain here <laughs> of our, of our high-tech studio. Um, uh, but anyway, so um, it was actually the, the opposite of what I was um, taught, so to speak, in the Protestant seminary. It's not that we don't know anything about the early church and have to imagine it. It is that in order to uh, maintain their separation from the Catholic Church, oh gosh, um, the, um, um, the, they basically have to, uh, I don't want to impute any dishonesty, but they have to maintain their ignorance of the very first decades and century of the church. So anyway, I'll continue now with his um, uh, with his um, uh, introduction. Yet, like most modern believers, I have lived practically all of my Christian life knowing nothing, next to nothing, about any of the early church uh, fathers and of the early church documents. Until I discovered these writings a few years ago. Any vague ideas I might have had about the early church came straight out of old Cecil B. DeMille movies. I honestly did not think it was possible to know much more, or I believe I would have tried harder. Looking back, I can see that I had a very sincere but completely ungrounded conviction that the period from Revelation to Constantine was terra incognita, a gaping dark continent on the map of history. Um... Anyway, of course, he was amazed and uh, confounded when he found out the truth. So, um, oh gosh, okay. Uh, this looks like it is a total washout, I, having him on. Um, I, I do not understand. Uh, I will, I'm going back and forth. I apologize profusely. And um, let me see if anything else is happening. I think that... Perhaps his lo he's lost his uh, phone service. Hmm, okay. What now? <laughs> okay, now um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work from his first book because um, his second book is less easy to extract from. So I'm working from Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her Own Words. And since this is Radio Maria, and since uh, even among Catholics, tell the truth, shamefully, there is some um, uh, some um, 
some uh, contesting the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Catholic Church and Catholicism. I will read from some of these um, first and second century Christians um, about the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, this is now this is now from the fourth century, uh, essentially before before any threat of um, Constantine having changed the church. Uh, uh, well, I'll read something first from the from the year two ten, uh, Tertullian of Carthage. Though a virgin, the word of God was introduced to set up a structure of life. Thus, what had been laid waste and ruined by this sex, that is women, was by the same sex re-established in salvation. Eve had believed the serpent, Mary believed Gabriel. That which the one destroyed by believing, the other by believing, set straight. So, we already have the uh, doctrine, so to speak, of the Blessed Virgin Mary as the new Eve, having restored this fallen state of man, essentially, as uh, as the first Eve was an agent for bringing about the fall of man, the second Eve, the Blessed Virgin Mary, was the agent for restoring man to his original intimacy with God, and actually further. Now from AD 360, um, this is uh, from Athanasius, uh, St. Athanasius, let those, therefore, who deny that the Son is by nature from the Father and proper to his essence, deny also that he took true human flesh from the ever-Virgin Mary. And then uh, 428, I um, can't believe that still nothing here. From uh, St. Augustine, Heretics called anti-dicomarites are those who contradict the perpetual virginity of Mary, and affirm that after Christ was born, she was joined as one with her husband. Okay, this is the year 428. So the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she was virgin before um, the conception of Jesus, uh, she was before the birth of Jesus, during the birth of Jesus, and after the birth of Jesus, um, that she was perpetually virgin, was already affirmed, um, what does this make it about 300 years, well, 350 years after Jesus died? Uh, I am distracting myself a bit because I have to keep an eye on... Okay, um, I will take the caller. I hope the caller is Rod, but are you there, caller? Hello? Hello? Hello, I can hear you. Can you oh, yay, it's Rod. The studio didn't know it was you. I have been doing a very bad job filling your shoes. Okay. Well, all's well that ends well. I've been doing a terrible job filling your shoes. I don't know if you heard any of it. I hope you didn't. Um, but we have our guest, uh, Rod Benedon, who actually wrote the book Four Witnesses and the more recent um, sequels, let's say, uh, for more witnesses in the early church. I've been butchering everything. I've been butchering your witness testimony. I've been butchering the purpose of your books. Um, I don't know if you remember, we we had the pleasure of meeting at a conference probably about 17 years ago. Do you remember that? Goodness, has it been that long? Yes, I do remember that. That was that was one of Steve Ray's little soirees. That's right. That's right. You got it. And anyway, so I'm very happy to be reunited with you. But, um, Absolutely. So why don't you just, uh, why don't we just pretend, <laughs> um, re unfortunately, real life doesn't have, you know, an erase function, so I, I can't erase the last 15 minutes, but, but um, why don't you just start with, I guess, why you wrote four more witnesses, excuse me, four witnesses and four more witnesses, and tell, tell the audience something about yourself. And this station, by the way, is in the Bible Belt. And we do have a lot of non-Catholic Christian listeners, so I hope they're particularly interested. So why don't I just hand it over to you, finally? 
Yeah, that, that sounds great. Well, I wrote four witnesses. Really, it's it a fancy way of telling my own uh, story about how I, uh, when, after starting out in evangelical churches, how I found my way into the Catholic Church. This happened about 20 years ago, believe it or not. The book is that old at this point. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the, the number one most significant factor in my progress and in my uh, story is uh, the witness of the church fathers uh and because of that i i was able to you know tell the story without being so terribly autobiographical i was able to tell the story of what i learned about these very early christian writers and how and then only at the end i stepped in for a minute in the afterward and talked about how they had affected me but basically i wrote four little miniature biographies about the four earliest Christian writers outside the pages of the New Testament whose works have survived down to our own time. These are very, very important uh, uh, witnesses, in some cases people who knew the apostles personally, and uh, they exist in a much greater number than I could ever have imagined. One of the things that was so striking about the experience of discovering them is I had no idea that many many thousands of pages of testimony survived from from that era immediately the decades immediately after the departure of the apostles so just that discovery uh, eventually led me to the decision that i made and that decision uh, led me to the writing of the original four witness and um the uh what what enables you to know that these original four witnesses spoke with such authority about what well, the true teaching of... That you mentioned the word authority because I actually opened the book, quote from John Henry Newman, the recently uh, canonized John Henry Newman, the English uh, convert, uh, who also was of great influence on me. But Newman uh, gives a quote that I used to open the book, and he said, we don't take the fathers as authorities. We don't accept them as some sort of third testimony. This is a common misunderstanding amongst uh, uh, when you're trying to communicate some of these ideas, that you're treating treating these writings as a kind of a third testament, and that, that's not really it at all. The, the writings of the fathers bear witness to a state of affairs that existed in those early days. Like, for example, if somebody were to come to me and say, as I often did before I studied the matter, that uh, the business of addressing petitions to the Virgin Mary and asking for her prayers and calling her ever virgin, as you as you did uh, mentioned earlier, uh, all of those things arose in the Middle Ages. I, I believe that myself, that it was an exaggerated uh, horror of sexual immorality that caused the Church at that time to overemphasize the, this idea of the purity and holiness of Mary, which just ran and and uh, that's a that's a historical proposition. In other words, if if you say these things didn't exist in the second century A.D., for example, say about once about between one eighty and two fifty A.D., if those things didn't exist, then there ought not to be records that they did exist, and yet there are. Let me. Uh, you can go to the John Rylands Library in Manchester, England, and see a piece of papyrus that dates from about the year 240 that has a famous prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, 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 calling for her intercession and calling her uh, Theotokos, the uh, God Mother, the Mother of God, and uh, all the many of the other Marian distinctives that dates from 250 A.D. So. Uh, you you completely dealt with the idea that this was a later accretion. You know, may it I, may be that Mary is not the mother of God, but you're going to have to, in denying it, you're going to have to approach it some other different way. You can't say it was some sort of late corruption or late addition because it wasn't. We nailed that down. Piece of hard archaeological evidence. Yeah, so, uh, let me make a distinction. That <laughs> role of the four witnesses. Not authorities. We don't accept the that the, the Mary was mother of God because some ancient writer said it 200 years after Christ. 
we accept the idea that the idea existed, the, the dogma of the of the Marius, the mother of God, existed in those centuries. Let me, let me, may I interrupt? To have been held by some of the most important writers of that era. I don't know if you can hear me. Can if you hear me? If you want to continue to deny the idea, you have to go on, to, as I had to do, to some other grounds besides, you know, this was barnacles attaching to the ship as, as the ages went on, which had been my original opinion. May I say so something? Can you hear me? Studio can. things that I disliked about Catholicism, too. They all could be found in these ancient writings. And therefore, the fathers had acted not as authorities, but as witnesses to an existing state of affairs. Can you hear me now? I can, yeah. Okay, good. Let me make a distinction, because I'm also, as you know, a convert into the church. And um, I didn't mean to to push the button about, about them being authorities. But there is a way, I would like to argue, that they are authorities, which is... They know what the first generation of Christians believed about the Holy Mass. And they know that, they learned that from people who were at the Last Supper. So, right, right, right. The, the, well, I understand your distinction. The real presence... Well, maybe using the term authority in two slightly different terms, Exactly. But you're absolutely right. They, they absolutely do act as authorities in the ordinary sense of the word. Not as sources of revelation, but as uh, uh, exactly. I mean, authoritative witnesses, if you will, to an existing state of affairs. I, I mentioned that the when I was trying to, <laughs> you know, wait until until you came on, that I, I actually was a student at a Protestant seminary for a while at at Gordon Conwell, um, to learn biblical languages. Not because I was Protestant; I was already Catholic, and. Um, they actually honestly thought, and these are these all the professors all had PhDs. They honestly thought that the mass didn't exist in the first centuries. So it's so easy to find out that it did. You that got it. Mean you have to accept that it's right or correct or biblical or anything else like that. Although I, I you've definitely got a problem on your hands, but uh, d- determining that it did in fact exist is. Very, very, especially in this age of the Internet where you're a couple of clicks away from all of these writings where you can read them for yourself and don't have to accept the word of any intermediaries. Uh, you know, just a few minutes of research will will solve that, that problem for you for the rest of your life. And and the the belief in the real presence in the Eucharist, which is already, by the way, in, in the, in the uh, New Testament, in Paul, right? I mean, it's right. it, it was it was astonishing to me um, how these extremely educated people protected themselves from certain knowledge because it would undermine their position. Well, at, at least a few of them came by it honestly, in the sense that they were simply passing down the tradition of their fathers. They emphasized the things they had been taught to emphasize and de-emphasized the ones they'd been taught not to. But uh, isn't it uh, Cardinal Newman? The fact that ignorance was probably probably part of it in a lot of the cases. Well, uh, it. Um, how can I put this? No, I mean, if they if 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 they um, thought there was no evidence about what the church believed for the first two hundred years, what Christians believed for the first two hundred years, then that is. Ignorance. It could be. It could be. Un, it could be um, non-culpable ignorance. It could be, you know, just. Yeah, that, that's what I was. Uh, but it's that. it's certainly ignorance, and um, I think you see that today. I don't want to get political. I always like getting political because we're living in such a political time. But you see <laughs> how how easy it is for people to choose the truth that they want to expose themselves to and protect themselves from truths they don't want to expose themselves to. Right, right, right. It's uh, the, the, the bentness of our human nature that causes us to uh, to willful blindness in many cases. Well, at least in my case with these early fathers, it was such a, a thrilling discovery. You know, just simply having in my hand a big, thick book like a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica with tiny little print, and not a word in it was written later than the year 200 A.D. 
that was just such a thrilling idea to somebody who'd always wondered about the early church and how things went after the close of the book of Acts that, uh, that I just dug into it and, and uh, <clears throat> was gobbled it up, so to speak, and did not go in there looking for controversy, just found it <laughs> without looking for it, so to speak. How long did, uh, did you fight it for a while? I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear you clearly. Did you did you fight the realization for a while, the implication that it meant that um, that uh, essentially that in the long run you'd have to become Catholic? Well, I had uh, I had fits, <laughs> spells, so to speak, where I would get scared of what I was doing. If you've been trained to think that this church might be the Antichrist and or the false prophet and the great Satan and all the rest of it. You're going to uh, you're going to have uh, irrational night terror, so to speak. So yeah, there were one or two spells where I took my uh, books and put them in a drawer and determined <laughs> didn't get rid of them. No, that's significant. You you <laughs> would have sprinkled them. Put them in a drawer yeah. somewhere so they wouldn't bother me for a while. You would have sprinkled so, them with holy water if you believed in holy water. Really. Well, um, I did want to introduce you with um, for the, your first book, Four Witnesses, which is what we've essentially been been alluding to, because um, basically everybody is aware of what an important resource it is and an important book. I've recommended it dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and I'm sure that every amateur and professional Catholic evangelist has recommended it dozens of times, hundreds of times, because it is so... Um, compelling, basically, without being polemical in any sense. It's just, you know, if if you're not going to think this is fiction, then you're kind of in the 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 false history is going to crumble before your eyes. But that raises the question, and also because it's the newly published book, and also because we share a publisher, um, what inspired you to write four more witnesses, and what's the contribution of four more witnesses? Well, you know, I have been blessed through the years to. To get from time to time uh, notif- notifications, emails, and what have you from people who, who tell me that the book was important on their journey, and uh, been gratified by that. And it, and it is. And a certain portion of those readers asked if uh, maybe there might be four more such witnesses that I could write up. That there might be four more similar stories. So uh, I finally gave in and said, "Yeah, let's uh, let's write four more." So uh, the next four uh, were pretty much chosen for the same reason that the first four were. Uh, The first four were Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus of Lyon. And as I said earlier in the broadcast, these were the the four earliest Christian writers whose works survive in, in enough completeness and there's enough reliability to them, not just fragments or scraps. But, but complete works that exist so that we could make a, an attempt at a biography or a, uh, a story based on their lives. And uh, uh, so I followed the next book up with the same principle. I picked the next four earliest witnesses who similarly have a, 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 enough of a fleshed-out biography and whose writings are there in enough fullness that, it, that you can actually do this with. So the next four are... Uh, Hermas, the author of the book The Shepherd, Hermas was uh, one of Clement of Rome's parishioners. He actually was a layman at the Church of Rome while Clement of Rome was, was bishop there. So uh, the two of them are linked very closely. In fact, if you read the book, you, you find out that they uh, they are linked in the story, that, that Clement, uh, Hermas submitted his book to Clement, and Clement ordered that the book be sent around, that it make the rounds, so to speak. So uh, the next witness after that is Clement of Alexandria, not to be confused with Clement of Rome. Clement of Alexandria was a disciple of Irenaeus. So there's another link uh, to the first book, Irenaeus having been the the final witness in in the first book. And then uh, the next two in the the new book, numbers 7 and 8, are Hippolytus of Rome and Origen. And both of them were disciples of Clement of Alexandria. 
So all eight of the witnesses are linked in that kind of chain of custody that we established in the first book. They all are, are linked in a kind of in a kind of chain that goes up and finishes before the year 260, that is, before the Emperor Constantine was even born. And I'm sometimes asked why that's important, and uh, I tried to answer that in another book I wrote called The Apostasy That Wasn't. One of the common tropes of anti-Catholic historicism is the idea that Constantine came in and everything changed and the church's belief. Constantine took over, he paganized the church and basically created Roman Catholicism. Well, all of these eight witnesses had lived out their entire course uh, long before Constantine ever rose to power, which is why they are very important, why I subtitled this book, uh, Further Testimony from Christians Before Constantine. And um, do you see, uh, oh gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, fall into the um, issue of what authority means, but but do you see uh, a development of doctrine? Do you see a um, you know an elucidation of of um, of the truths of the faith over these this two or three generations of of disciples? Yes, of course. Many of the things that we hold in common with the evangelicals, thanks be to God, are there very clearly. Uh, the divinity of Christ, the uh, saving death of Christ on the cross, all, all the rest of that. But also, yes, there is more talk about things that we don't have in common with our evangelical brothers and sisters. And uh, they do, these second, this second set of witnesses also bear witness to the truth, the existence, at least in these early centuries, of, uh, of many of the controverted Document, uh, controverted issues between us, baptismal regeneration, uh, the uh, true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, Marian issues, and uh, all the rest of it. So, yeah, they, they do continue. For example, Justin Martyr in the first book gives the earliest account of a Christian, detailed account of a Christian church service, and uh, it's very important, his uh, uh, apology is very important because it gives us the first picture of a Christian Eucharist being held. But uh, uh, Hippolytus gives us the same kind of description, only in much, much greater detail, because it was prepared for use in seminaries, and uh, it, it, it gives us a much greater... It's, I, at one point I call it Justin on steroids, because the, uh, Hippolytus's book, The Apostolic Traditions, is the same kind of account, only much more detailed and much more uh, theological. So, uh, yeah, it's they definitely do take uh, the explanations to a uh, greater level of detail. So that's one of the, one of the things that makes the second book important is that it fills in uh, even more fully some of the blanks that were present in the first book. Well, since since we are talking a little bit about um, uh, doctrines that. Uh, uh, separate the uh, Catholic community from the their Protestant brethren. And since the show is uh, on Radio Maria, um, can you talk a little bit about, about um, basically the, the role of Mary, what was understood about Mary when churches perhaps dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary emerged, uh, when prayers to Mary emerged? You know, can you glorify our Blessed Mother a little bit in the early centuries? Well, Rithi. absolutely, yes. The, the, the best of the witnesses for those purposes is Origen. Origen, in fact, the great, great, uh, the third century scholar, many people believe that he was the greatest saint of his era. He, he His father was a martyr. He himself died uh, uh, after having been mistreated in a persecution. And uh his saintly character made him famous wherever he went, and he was definitely the greatest theologian uh, of his age. And uh, he may very well have the distinction of having coined the term Mother of God. That doesn't mean that the ideas were invented by him or that weren't believed by anybody until that time. But he, he definitely he is the man who did for the uh, glories of Mary what uh, Athanasius and some of the others did for the Trinity. That is, they they coined the term Trinity, uh, which is 
similarly easy to misunderstand. In other words, most Christians know that the word Trinity isn't in Scripture or that it isn't, uh, that you don't find it in the Bible, nor any of the other formulations we associate with it. God in three persons, uh, the triune Godhead, any, none of those things exist in Scripture. Certainly the raw material is there in Scripture waiting to be put together in in a uh, either a correct or an incorrect way, and that that's the work of uh, later commentators and exegetes. Well, that's what Origen did for the the divine motherhood, the uh, the idea that the person that Mary gave birth to in the stable at Bethlehem was a divine person, a human man who nevertheless was also the incarnation of the second pre-existing second person of the Trinity. That uh, uh, that idea had been a source of trouble in the church, in that many misunderstandings of it arose, and once the misunderstandings hardened in some circles into heresies, the church had to deal with it. And in dealing with it, they they uh, they coined uh, more specific, more definite terms that uh, that correctly express the truth, just as the Trinity, the word Trinity, correctly expresses the truth. But uh, it are at least open to the idea that that word is not in Scripture. Similarly, the, the term uh, theotokos, or mother of God, is not in Scripture. It's definitely, definitely a correct representation or a summation of what we do find in Scripture. And it may be that Origen has that uh, distinction of having been the first to put the, ter- uh, put the truths in quite such a succinct, striking term. And they made it very clear and very memorable. Um, do you know anything? Uh, were there any uh, any records of uh, prayers to the Blessed Virgin Mary from this period, or churches dedicated to her? Yes, I mentioned that just briefly earlier. Yes, the the prayer uh, subtuum presidium. I don't think my Latin is very good, but I think that's the Latin name of it. It's the earliest known Marian prayer. And it's possible that it was composed by Origen. We don't know about that, but it's, it's possible that it was. Certainly it appeared at about the same time that Origen was, talk, was talking about the Mother of God and uh, awakening uh, people to the, uh, to the really profound profundities of truth that they already believed, but uh, hadn't quite uh, uh, gotten startled by yet. So, uh, yes, the, 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 that prayer is the prayer I mentioned earlier, where Mary is explicitly called Mother of God, where uh, she's called, uh, amongst merely human beings, she's called the only Holy One. So that's a reference to the her uh, sinless uh, character and her immaculate conception. And uh, uh, some of the other distinctives are in that early prayer, too. And again, we not only know that it, this prayer existed, we have a copy of it dating from the mid-3rd century, that is, about 250 A.D. We have an archaeological copy of it that, you, that people can go and look at if they'd like. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very important, uh, important uh, uh, proof that these things existed that early. Uh, we fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, etc. Yes, that's right. Petitions... Yeah. Addressed to the Blessed Virgin there. Yeah. So it's so, God called Mother of God explicitly. Yeah. And also there's a, the, the reference to uh, Mary as the uh, the uh, only holy one, not the only holy being. Obviously, no 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 believer in uh, in the God of Israel could ever say that any human being is the only holy being in the universe, which is certainly not what Catholics believe. Well, but amongst merely human beings, she, she's the one, the, the only one that uh, 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 preserved herself uh, in this sinless state. Well, Adam she's and Eve, I, Eve certainly didn't do it. Let's put it that way. Well, okay. Also, she she's the only one who was. Um, uh, conceived without original sin, also. I mean, in other words, she didn't just preserve herself, right, but right. she she got a leg up never on the rest of us. Never, never acquired any sins of her own either. Yeah, uh, I see we have a caller, and um, I think it's probably for you. But um, okay, uh, go ahead, studio. Put the caller on. Do you, what do you want to introduce yourself, caller, with uh, where you're calling from and your mm-hmm. name? Okay. 
Go ahead. Is there like echo? Not. There. No, I can hear you. Go ahead. We can hear you fine. I'm Philip Schaefer, the odd Jew. It wasn't, you know, the church in Antioch passed on from John the Evangelist to Ignatius of Antioch. There was a handoff from, he was the last uh, disciple, John the Evangelist, the guy that ended up on Patmos. Wasn't there like a handover? And did Peter know Linus? He was the second pope. That's my question. Okay, as far as the papacy, there's traditions that Linus was uh, was a uh, a churchman at Rome, so it's very likely that that Peter did know him. But uh, the facts about these very very early names on those lists are pretty sketchy. So he may very well have known him, but it's not not definitely known for sure. Well, I know and, definitely yes, that John the Evangelist knew uh, Ignatius of Antioch. That may very well be because they both operated in what the, what the church called Asia Minor. It called Asia in those days. Uh, and John founded the churches. The tradition is that St. John founded the churches in that part of the world. Ephesus yes, and the I, rest. So, yes, they both operated Asia in the Minor, same area. Yeah. And both of them were very old men at the turn of the second century, about well, about 100 A.D. And so well, they may very, their lives almost certainly did overlap, but we can't say yeah, say definitely that they knew each other. We can't say definitely. The language at that time of the Jews in, the, in that era was Greek, obviously, was it? For many of them, yes. Uh-huh. There were there were educated. Uh, you know, Greek was the language of literacy all over the empire, and uh, so educated Jews, almost all of them, knew, knew Greek. It's good reason to think that the twelve apostles knew it. They came oh, from uh, uh, they came from the uh, they came from the northern part of the Holy Land, Galilee, which was a cross great, great crossroads in the ancient world, and uh, I, I would uh, we have good evidence that most uh, young men who grew up in that area, received a good I education included Jews, I would imagine the educated Jews in that area knew Latin, Greek. Yeah, and there were, Josephus tells us there were synagogue schools in uh, yeah. Galilee, Galilee that uh, that most young boys were sent to, and so that one of the things me, they learned was Greek. What made me decide to become Catholic from a Jewish Protestant is reading the story about Edith Stein, which, by the way, Roy did a real good job on his documentary on Edith Stein. I was impressed. So, yeah, that's a, a very story. compelling story. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was at a church nearby, and it was like the Feast of Edith Stein on August 9th, but I couldn't help but start weeping. It was embarrassing. I got very emotional because her and Edith Stein and I were of the same ethnic persuasion. And she was working on you, I suspect. In other words, it was whenever one weeps in a situation like that, it's grace. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you very much for the call, and um, I'll let go back to. Fine job on that. Thanks. My my compliments. Okay, thanks a lot, and and I am very grateful to to Rod. I think that any regular listeners know that. my knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep, so it's always wonderful to have somebody who actually has a little depth to what they talk about. You said you want the call from the odd Jew. I mean, I've been called a strange Jew, but I've never been called the odd Jew. Odd Jew, okay. Um, well, <laughs> okay. Um, odd means different things, but anyway. Um, I'm just joking. I'm just uh, yeah. Um, okay, well, let me go back to... Uh, let me let you go for uh, Philip because I want to get back to Rod. But thank you very much for the call, and I do want to uh, uh, hit another little hot button topic, which of course is, um, is I mean it's not only a hot button topic between Catholics and Protestants, but even between Eastern churches and and Catholics, which is um, why is the Bishop of Rome the Pope? And and where does that come from, and how how solidly found, you know is the foundation of that? Well, certainly the the, the earliest fathers of, of the See of Rome, that is the church founded by Peter and Paul, as as Irenaeus puts it in a famous quote, the uh, uh, 
that church was recognized in his day. And keep in mind, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who had been discipled by St. John the Apostle. So that's how close Irenaeus was. And Irenaeus tells us that that in his day, he says the the church, that most fortunate church, the the most blessed church that had the glory of having been created by Peter and Paul, uh, uh, has uh, an absolutely... Unreal, un, uh, what's the word? It's hard to, there are various different English translations. None of them really kind of do justice to what's actually being said. He's saying that church is, has an undoubted, a completely undoubted role as being a cornerstone of faith. He says if you ever want to, if there's a dispute between any of the local churches, between any of the other bishops, the way that these things are handled in his day is that the the local churches, many of whom were also founded by apostles, these churches, their way of handling these kind of issues is to submit the question to the Church of Rome, where it, the, the faith of the apostles, as he puts it, has always been preserved inviolate. Wow. So, and-, uh, there, and there are many other references, not quite as old as that one, to the idea that the Church of Rome is a special depository for... Uh, for the faith in its full full purity, and even has a kind of a divine guarantee. And what's the date of that first so, uh, first assertion? And the the first uh, citation you gave is help us with the dates of um, that. Irenaeus uh, wrote the, wrote those things in his uh, books against heresies, I believe, which date from about one eighty. Okay, so so basically within one hundred and fifty years, one hundred and twenty years of the founding of Christianity. Um, well, if, if St. John the Apostle died about 95, as many scholars believe, then, then yes, that's not even 100 years, less than 100 years, wow. about, about 85, 90 years afterwards. So, uh, and yes, Irenaeus writes very confidently of the idea that, uh, that the bishop, uh, sorry, not the bishop, he mentions the church. Now, there's something, an interesting point to make in that. Yes, he doesn't say the Pope, okay, but he says the the Church of Rome is always a reliable lodestone. You know, so long as you submit what you're what you're talking about to them, you'll get the right answer. Well, how does the Church at Rome speak authoritatively? In other words, if you were to ask the Church at Rome, who answers back? Well, everybody knows that the bishops, the apostolic bishops, bishops in the apostolic succession answer back, and the Bishop of Rome was the successor of Peter, and the successor of Peter will answer you back if you apply to his church about what the faith is. Okay, so even though Irenaeus doesn't say it explicitly, he's saying that that the Pope, if you write to that church, you'll get an answer from the Bishop of Rome, and that Bishop of Rome will always give a correct answer. So there, in embryonic form, is the idea of the infallibility of the Pope because nobody else speaks authoritatively for that church. And that church, even in 180, was recognized as a as an infallible source of apostolic doctrine. Wow. I guess there's only probably only time for, for one more of these issues. But, um, I mean, obviously the, the church is founded, in a sense, on apostolic succession and on the need for bishops to be made bishops from bishops who were made bishops by eventually the apostles at the Last Supper. Um, what's the Through early... The Excuse me? Through the laying on of hands, as the New Testament puts it. Um, um, uh, is there a lot of early evidence of how seriously that was taken? Yes, as a matter of fact, the, the, the first book, Four Witnesses, especially, uh, hones in on that issue more than any other. Um, Clement of Rome, his letter, which dates from probably 90, 90 or 95 A.D., it may actually be older than the Gospel of John. That's how old that uh, that letter is. But his, uh, his epistles to the Corinthians is... Uh, a very ancient piece of writing, and it pretty much the entire theme is that no church can toss out uh, 
successors of the apostles, men who were put in place by men who were put in place by the twelve apostles. No, nobody can do that. And that's the really the theme of the letter. There was a a group of upstarts at the church of Corinth. We we see in the New Testament and St. Paul's writings, the epistles to the his epistles to the Corinthians, that there was trouble about unity even in Corinth, even in Paul's day. But it arose into it, it spilled over into an out and out schism a couple of decades later, and Clement, the Bishop of Rome, was called upon to settle it. Now how does that happen? How is it that the bishop of another church hundreds of miles away gets called upon to intervene and act as a referee at the equally apostolic church of Corinth unless that bishop has some sort of an important role in deciding disputes between the bishops. And so Clement, in, in exercising that authority, uh, he lays out the principle of apostolic succession in so many words. He says it is absolutely uh, impossible that uh, that leaders, bishops, put into place by the apostles and then their successors should be voluntarily overthrown on mere human whim. He, uh, he lays out very, very, very clearly the principle of apostolic succession. And then, of course, Irenaeus, sorry, Ignatius, the second witness, also his whole story is, I mean, he gives his life as a martyr for the principle of apostolic succession. So I can't make the whole argument here, but if you, if you wow. if, if we have any listeners who are specifically interested in this idea of an apostolic succession in the church, the book Four Witnesses, the original Four Witnesses, zeroes in on that, that like a laser beam. Okay. Well, that's actually um, a good segue to what I wanted to ask you because we're in our last few minutes, which is, you know, people have just gotten the, the slightest moistening of their tongue of what you have to give, obviously, on the show. And um, I, I think I've already recommended, and I, I certainly do, your four witnesses and your four more witnesses. But if they want more of you or whatever, do you, you know, is there any other, any other resources um, that you want to point them to, to know what you have to share and to to hear your evangelization well, I on say, the faith. I a big ministry or a high-tech website or something like that, but I'm not very high-tech. I live in, a, in a, an old farmhouse in, up in the mountains, so <laughs> I'm a man of the 20th century, I'm afraid, so I'm not very high-tech. But uh, but I do. I can send you to people who do, and so I can for the two books about the Four Witnesses, I can send you to Ignatius.com. They are the publisher of those two books, and as you mentioned, Roy, your own books also. And uh, if you want to get the apostasy that wasn't, which is addresses the the nutty Constantine created Catholicism conspiracy theory, uh, then you can get that from our friends at Catholic Answers. So go to Catholic dot com for that. So that's a pretty good starting place. Uh, I don't know if I want to recommend Bad Shepherds or not. Um, <laughs> but it's a very useful book also. I, I mean, your name, I'm, I'm going to spell it because, you know, the Internet is very spelling sensitive. It's Rod, R-O-D, Bennett, B-E, two N's, N-N-E-T-T. And I'm sure if you Google that, I don't know if Rod knows what Google is, but you guys do. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can find, uh, find his books because he actually has... Um, I am embarrassed to say you you've, you have more books than I was aware of, and they all sound pretty interesting. And uh, there are also some very good uh, uh, your journey home show on EWTN, which one can find on the EWTN website. And um, I I think you had another you had some other something else on EWTN. I think if I remember correctly, Scripture well, Wars. Had me on for book review shows too. So yeah, yeah their bookmark program has so, got several episodes uh, defaced by my uh, utterly bizarre. Well, I guess I guess um, the high tech solution then is to use Google to find out how to find Rod on the internet and find his public That's ministry right. on the internet. Right. But anyway, I'm, I'm very grateful to having you on, and I think that it's especially appropriate. Uh, first of all, given the fact that this is a Bible Belt. A broadcast to a large extent, many of our uh, broadcast stations. I know we have many listeners over the internet, but we do have about 10 or 12 broadcast stations, and, and many of them are in the Bible Belt, and many of our callers are, and um, 
callers into my program end up being Protestants well, with questions. I trust that at least some of your audience can understand my funny accent, so that's good. <laughs> if they can understand a New York Jew, they can understand a <laughs> Tennessee Southern Baptist. Um, and uh, anyway, I'm very happy that, that the technical difficulties uh, were uh, overcome. That probably has to do with being a mountain man from Tennessee. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think you have fiber, fiber optic cable up there. Um, and, uh, anyway, I can't recommend, uh, can't recommend your books, especially, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine starting anywhere other than, than, than four witnesses tell the truth and then going on from there. And so anyway, thank you very much for, for coming on. And, um, I, 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 before they take out the crook and it's not a bishop's crook, it's the thing that used to pull vaudevillians off the stage with, I better say goodbye and (laughs) thank my audience. I thank you very much, that's Rod. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And Thanks for having me, I've enjoyed. It. Good. I have too. It's, let's not have it be seventeen years again or whatever it was. And that's right. Yeah, you, you contact me anytime you want to. Please come on again anytime you like. Uh, okay. Um, okay. And we'll even maybe practice a little bit so that so that we get the tech down a little better. Um, I I get. Yeah, I've got a son who's a millennial, so. He interprets things for me sometimes. <laughs> okay. So, he wasn't available today. So anyway, I have a chat stream. You can't see it, but but I see it, and and we've gotten a lot of very 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 positive feedback about the show so far during this show. So anyway, thank you. And as I said, I've got to say goodbye. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman, and our guest of today, Rod Bennett, the author of a number of books, including Four Witnesses and Four More Witnesses. And I will cue up a little, a little, you know, uh, him asking Jesus to come again soon. I think many of us share that sentiment. And um, then the studio can 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 segue into whatever they do when my hour is over. But I'm afraid it's over. I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. So long, everybody. Ven Señor Jesús Maranatha Ven Señor Jesús Maranatha Ven Señor Jesús Maranatha Ven Señor Jesús Maranatha Come Lord Jesus
Señor Jesús Maranata 